radio message of His Holiness Pope Pius XII on the fifth anniversary of the beginning of the Second World War, given on Friday, September 1, 1944. The Defense of Christian Civilization Today, at the end of the fifth year since the outbreak of the war, humanity, while looking back to gazing at the path of tears and blood, frantically traveled in this dark five-year history, horrifies before the abyss of misery in which the spirit of violence and the dominance of force have precipitated it, and while not letting itself be overwhelmed by the memory of the past, it anxiously searches for the causes of such a fatal spiritual and material catastrophe, resolved to take every more effective remedy against the repetition and other forms of the huge tragedy. Shaken by the heap of many ruins, many honest souls awaken as if from an anguished dream, eager to find in other fields, hitherto mutually separate and distant, collaborators, companions of the way and of struggle, for the great work of reconstruction of a world undermined in its foundations and torn apart in its most intimate structure. Certainly nothing more natural, nothing more appropriate, nothing, assuming the necessary precautions, more dutiful. For those who pride themselves on the Christian name and profess faith in Christ, with a way of life that inviolably complies with its laws, this disposition and readiness of mind to work in common, in the spirit of true fraternal solidarity, not only obey the moral obligation and the correct fulfillment of civic duties, it rises to the dignity of a postulate of conscience supported and guided by the love of God and neighbor, to which the warning signs of the present moment and the intensity of the effort required for the salvation of peoples adds vigor. The quadrant of history today marks a serious, decisive hour for all humanity. An ancient world lies shattered. To see a new world arise from those ruins as soon as possible, healthier, legally better ordered, more in harmony with the demands of human nature, such is the yearning of the tormented peoples. Who will the architects who will draw the essential lines of the new building, what will the thinkers who will give it the, defi the definitive imprint? To the faithful and fatal errors of the past, will others succeed, no less deplorable, and will the world swing from one end to the other indefinitely? Or will the pendulum stop that the action of wise rulers of peoples on directions and solutions that do not contradict divine law and do not conflict with human and above all Christian conscience? The fate of Christian civilization in Europe and in the world depends on the answer to this question. Far from bringing shadow or prejudice to all the peculiar and so varied forms of civilized life in which the character of each people is manifested, civilization is grafted into them and revives the highest ethical principles the written moral law by the Creator in the hearts of men. See Romans chapter 2, verse 15. The right of nature deriving from God, the fundamental rights and the intangible dignity of the human person, and in order to better bend the wills to their observance, he infuses individual men, all the people and the coexistences of nations, with those superior energies, which no human power is even remotely worth to confer, to confer while in the likeness of the forces of nature, it preserves poisons, germs that threaten the moral order, which prevents ruin. Thus it happens that Christian civilization, without suffocating or weakening the healthy elements of the most varied native cultures, harmonizes them in essential things, thus creating a large unity of sentiments and moral norms, a very solid foundation of true peace, social justice, and of brotherly love among all members of the great human family. The last centuries have seen, with one of those evolutions full of contradictions, whose history is staggered, on the one hand, the foundations of Christian civilization systematically undermined, 
On the other hand, its patrimony still spread through all the peoples. Europe and the other continents still live, to varying degrees, the vital forces and principles which the legacy of Christian thought has transmitted to them, almost as if in a spiritual blood transfusion. Some come to forget this precious heritage, to neglect it, even to repudiate it, but the fact of that hereditary succession remains. A son can well deny his mother, therefore he does not cease to be united to her biologically and spiritually. So also the children, who have left and estranged from the paternal home, still hear, sometimes unconsciously, as the voice of the blood, the echo of that Christian heritage, which often in their intentions and actions preserves them from letting themselves be completely dominated and guided by false ideas, to which they deliberately or in fact adhere. Clairvoyance, dedication, courage, inventive genius, the sentiment of fraternal charity of all righteous and honest spirits, will determine to what extent and to what extent Christian thought will be given to maintain and support the gigantic work of restoration, of social, economic, international life, in a plan not inconsistent with the religious and moral content of Christian civilization. Therefore, to all our sons and daughters in the vast world, as well as to those who, although not belonging to the Church, feel united with us in this hour of perhaps irrevocable determinations, we address the urgent exhortation to ponder the extraordinary gravity of the moment, and to consider how, above all collaboration, with other divergent ideological tendencies and social forces, sometimes suggested for purely contingent reasons, loyalty to the heritage of Christian civilization and its staunch defense against atheistic and anti-Christian currents is the keystone, which can never be sacrificed to no transitory advantage to any changing combination. This invitation, which we trust will find a favorable echo in millions of souls on earth, tends mainly to a loyal and effective collaboration in all those fields, in which the creation of a more righteous legal order is manifested, as particularly required by the Christian idea itself. This applies in a special way to that complex of formidable problems, which concern the constitution of an economic and social order more responsive to the eternal divine law, and more in conformity with human dignity. In it, Christian thought recognizes as a substantial element the elevation of the proletariat, whose resolute and generous implementation appears to every true follower of Christ not only as an earthly progress, but also as a fulfillment of a moral obligation. Some Aspects of the Economic and Social Issue After bitter years of destitution, of restrictions, and above all, of anguished uncertainty, men await, at the end of the war, a profound and definitive improvement of such sad conditions. The promises of statesmen, the multiple con conceptions and proposals of scholars and technicians, have aroused among the victims of an unhealthy economic and social order an illusory expectation of total palingenesis of the world, an exalted hope of a millennial kingdom of universal happiness. This sentiment offers favorable ground for the propaganda of the most radical programs, disposes the spirits to a well-understandable but unreasonable and unjustified impatience, which nothing promises from organic reforms and expects everything from subversions and violence. Faced with these extreme tendencies, the Christian, who seriously meditates on the needs and miseries of his time, remains in the choice of remedies faithful to the norms that experience, sound reason, and Christian social ethics point out as the foundations and principles of any just reform. Already our immortal predecessor Leo XIII, in his famous encyclical Rerum Novarum, enunciated the principle that for every righteous economic and social order, quote, the law of private property must be placed as an unchallenged foundation, end quote. 
if it is true that the church has always recognized, quote, the natural right to property and hereditary transmission of her possessions, end quote, see encyclical quadrigesimo anno, it is nevertheless certain that this private property is in particular the natural fruit of labor, the product of an intensive activity of man, which he acquires thanks to his energetic desire to ensure and develop with his own strengths the existence of himself and that of his family, to create for himself and his own a field of right freedom, not only economic, but also political, cultural, and religious. The Christian conscience cannot accept as just a social order which either denies in principle or renders the natural right of property practically impossible or vain, both on consumer goods and on the means of production. But it cannot even accept those systems which recognizes the right of private property according to a completely false concept, and are therefore in contrast with the true and healthy social order. Therefore, where, for example, capitalism is based on these erroneous conceptions and an unlimited right arrogates over property, without any subordination to the common good, the church has reproached it as contrary to the right of nature. In fact, we see the ever-growing group of workers often faced with those excessive concentrations of economic goods which, often hidden under anonymous forms, manage to escape their social duties, and almost with the worker and the impossibility of forming an effective property. We see small and medium-sized property waning and weakening in social life, as tight and forced as it is to an increasingly hard defensive fight, and without hope of good success. We, we see, on the other hand, huge wealth dominating the private and public economy, and often less civilian activity. On the other, the innumerable multitude of those who, deprived of any direct or indirect security over their lives, no longer take interest in the true and high values of the spirit, close themselves to the aspirations towards genuine freedom, throw themselves at the service of any party, politician, slaves of anyone who promises them bread and tranquility in some way. And experience has shown what tyranny humanity is capable of, of in these conditions even in the present time. Thus defending the principle of private property, the church pursues a high ethical social goal. It does not intend to support the present state of affairs purely and simply, as if it saw the expression of the divine will in it, nor to protect the rich and plutocrat against the poor and the wealthy in a principle. Far from it. From the beginning, she has been the guardian of the weak oppressed against the tyranny of the powerful, and has always sponsored the right demands of all classes of workers against all iniquities. But the church rather aims to ensure that the institution of private property is such as it must be according to the designs of divine wisdom, and the disposition of nature, an element of social order, a necessary precondition for human initiatives. Take away the hope of the worker to buy some personal property. What other natural stimulus could you offer him to incite him to an intense job, to savings, to sobriety? While today not a few men and peoples, having lost everything, have nothing more than their ability to work. Or do you want to perpetuate the war economy for what in some countries the public power has in hand all over the means of production and provides for everyone and everything, but with a lash of hard discipline? In other words, will you want to be subject to the dictatorship of a political group, which will have as the ruling class the means of production, but also bread and therefore the individual's will to work. The social and economic policy of the future, the ordering activity of the state, of the municipalities, of the professional institutes, cannot sustainably achieve their high goal, which is the true fruitfulness of social life and the normal performance of the national economy, if not respecting and protecting the vital function of private property and its personal and social value. When the distribution of property is an obstacle to this end, 
which does not necessarily or always originate from the extension of private property, the state can intervene in the common interest to regulate its use, or even if it cannot be equitably provided otherwise, decree the expropriation given a suitable compensation. For the same purpose, small and medium-sized properties in agriculture, the arts and crafts, in commerce and industry, they must be guaranteed and promoted. Cooperative unions must assure them of the advantages of the big company, with the large companies still more productive today. The possibility of tempering the employment contract with a company contract must be offered. Nor can it be said that technical progress is opposed to this regime, and pushes in an irresistible current all activity towards gigantic companies and organizations, in front of which a social system founded on the private property of individuals must inevitably collapse. No, technical progress does not determine economic life as a fatal and necessary fact. All too often it has docilely bowed to the needs of selfish calculations eager to increase capital indefinitely. Why then would he not bow to the need to maintain and ensure the private property of all, the cornerstone of the social order? Even technical progress as a social fact must not prevail over the general good, but instead be ordered and subordinate to it. At the end of this war, which upset all the activities of human life and launched them towards new paths, the problem of the future configuration of the social order will give rise to an ardent struggle between the various tendencies, in the midst of which the Christian social conception has the arduous but also noble mission of highlighting and showing theoretically and practically to the followers of other doctrines such as in this field, so important for the peaceful development of human coexistence. The postulates of true equity and Christian principles can unite in close union that generate salvation and good for those who know how to renounce prejudices and passions and listen to the teachings of truth. We trust that our faithful sons and daughters of the Catholic world will be heralds of the Christian social idea. Charity Thoughts The exhortation to the vigilance and readiness of all Christians for the immense duties of a future, which seems to be near now, must not make us lose sight of the acute distress of the present, nor will anyone be surprised if, while embracing all the peoples of the earth with equal love, our concern in this field and at this moment goes in a special way towards Italy and Rome. The direct war operations, which have upset a large part of the Italian soil, are now also far from the Eternal City, but the direct and indirect consequences of the conflict are far from over. L'Herbe, which Mary, mother of divine love, protected in the hour of danger, no longer resounds with the roar of battles. But the struggle against poverty, hunger, unemployment, and economic hardship has reached such an extent in many regions of Italy that it requires a maximum and ready for winter, a ready and effective remedy. Nobody ignores the fact that in the great wars, the hard military needs are usually given precedence over any different regard and consideration. On the other hand, anyone who does not allow himself to be guided by particular tendencies, but reflects on the imperious needs to provide together with the essential needs of civilian life, will admit and recognize the fatal influences and damages that the systematic requisition, removal, or destruction a precious means of transport, they cause the supply of sufficient and affordable food at reasonable price. Everyone also understands how this abnormal state, combined with the equally vast destruction, requisition, or removal of powerful means of production, has provoked a paralysis in economic life. Non-sterile accusations will remedy so much evil, but the sincere and generous collaboration of those who have the possibility and authority to serve the interests of the country. It is perhaps not desirable that probing, honest, inexperienced, inexper frank, and immune to any stain of crime or real abuse cooperate in the common good, even if the past they found themselves in another political field, 
which would also pave the way for the union of souls. No people collapsed under the weight of physical and moral disasters can recover by themselves with their own strength from its prostration. But on the other hand, no people, justly jealous of their honor, would adapt to wait its resurgence only from the help of others, and not at the same time for the effort of their will and their energies. Therefore, knowing the profound misery in which large regions of Italy have fallen, we first of all remind those who, in the country themselves, have large stocks and an abundant harvest of food, the obligation not to subtract them, for greed for greater earnings, to those who languish with hunger, mindful of the terrible punishments threatened by the eternal judge, to those who are merciless for their suffering brother. We then invoke from the peoples, whose economic capacity has not been substantially damaged by the war, to offer the people of Italy, as far as possible and without prejudice, to what is also due to other equally destitute nations, those relief services they need, especially in the initial period of its rebirth. We are happy to recognize what has been done, and we know that we intend to do even more, in this sense by the Allied powers, as we also gladly appreciate the efforts made by the Italian authorities. No more than us, to whom the care of the apostolic ministry makes it easier to know the pains of the poor and the oppressed, feels deep gratitude in the heart towards those in Italy and abroad. Governments, episcopate, clergy, laity, have cooperated and cooperate for such a noble purpose. It has unfortunately not been possible so far to obtain the use of motor sailing ships or other ships for the transport of food and for the return of refugees to their lands. We nevertheless have the confidence to achieve other means in the near future to bring relief to numerous misfortunes and as in the past. We greet in this relief service from people to people already started during the war, despite the limited that this allows, the reawakening of a sense of generosity, no less humanly elevated than politically wise meaning that in the heat of the struggle and in the passionate affirmation of the conflicting interests, it can rather weaken, but not entirely extinguish, and that founded as it is on nature itself and on the Christian conception of life, it will then have to return fully in honor, as soon as the sword will have done its hard work. Thoughts of Peace Nothing without a doubt we most ardently desire that to see as soon as possible shine the day. When the roar of arms has ceased, so much of tortured humanity will be restored, and almost to the extreme limit of its physical and moral forces, peace, security, and prosperity. Countless hearts sigh this day, like shipwrecked people that the rising of the morning star. Many nevertheless warn as of now that the transition from the violent storm to the great tranquility of peace can still be painful and bitter. They understand that the stages of the journey from the cessation of hostilities to the establishment of normal living conditions can hide more serious difficulties than you may think. It is therefore all the more necessary that a strong feeling of solidarity resurrect among peoples, in order to make the recovery of the world faster and long-lasting. Already in our Christmas speech of 1939, we hoped for the creation of international organizations, which by avoiding the gaps and deficiencies of the past, were really capable of preserving peace, according to the principles of justice and equity, against any possible threat of the future. Since today, in the light of so many terrible experiences, the aspiration towards such a new universal institution of peace is increasingly attracting the attention and care of statesmen and peoples. We willingly express our satisfaction and form the wise that your concrete implementation truly corresponds to the greatest extent to the height of the goal, which is the maintenance, for the benefit of all, of tranquility and security in the world. But perhaps no one anxiously invokes the end of the conflict and the rebirth of mutual harmony between the nations, as the millions of prisoners and civilian internees, forced by the war to eat the hard bread of captivity, or forced labor in a foreign land. The pain of protracted distance from mothers, brides, children, 
Long separation from all loved people and things pines and consumes them, and arouses in them a lively sense of crash and abandonment, of which it can get an idea only those who know how to penetrate the intimate anguish of their hearts. And since this war, with what is necessarily or arbitrarily connected to it, has led to the largest and most tragic migration of peoples known to history, it will be the work of high humanity, of clairvoyant justice, and of orderly wisdom. Such a resolution, which of course would not exclude some cautions deemed perhaps indispensable, would be for many wretched people a first ray of sunshine in the dark night, the symbolic announcer of a new era, in which, with the growing relaxation of minds, all peace-loving nations, big and small, powerful and weak, winners and losers, they will have a part, no less in the rights and duties, than in the benefits of a true civilization. The sword can, and sometimes unfortunately, must open the way to peace. The shadow of the sword can also weigh on the journey from the cessation of hostilities to the formal conclusion of peace. The threat of the sword may appear inevitable, within the legally necessary and morally justifiable limits, even after the conclusion of peace, to protect the, to protect the observance of just obligations and prevent attempts at new conflicts. But the soul of a peace worthy of this name, its life-giving spirit, can only be one, a justice that with impartial measure to all gives what is due to everyone and demands from everyone what everyone is obliged to, a justice that does not give everything to everyone, but gives everyone love, and no one does wrong, a justice that is the daughter of truth and mother of healthy freedom and sure greatness.